0: Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Welcome to Awaken and our Sunday gathering. We're so glad that you're here. Um, if you're new with us, we want to extend a special welcome to you. Um, it's been really wonderful to meet with people who are new to Awaken through the past year. If you could go on to our website and just let us know you're here, um, then we can follow up and have a conversation getting to know you. And also for um, all of us who have been around here for quite some time, I was really moved by Krista Kester's um, Uh, words that she shared this past Sunday about how there's a collective energy when we gather together and how we are all missing that and longing for that. But I just want to invite you to the space that we have um, as we share this time of worship together. I'm bringing a reading for our call to worship by Howard Thurman. If you're not familiar with um, Mr. Thurman, he was a great preacher in the last century. And he was a mentor and a spiritual advisor to many of the civil rights leaders, including Martin Luther King, Jr. Um, So let me offer these words. I'm going to read this twice. Um, Once as a call to worship to your heart and once as a call to our worship collectively. This is, Lord, Lord, open unto me. Open unto me, light for my darkness. Open unto me, courage for my fear. Open unto me, hope for my despair. Open unto me, peace for my turmoil. Open unto me, joy for my sorrow. Open unto me strength for my weakness. Open unto me wisdom for my confusion. Open unto me forgiveness for my sins. Open unto me tenderness for my toughness. Open unto me love for my hates. Open unto me thyself. For myself And now hear this collectively, as a, all of us as we come to this time of worship. Open unto us light for our darkness. Open unto us courage for our fear. Open unto us hope for our despair. Open unto us peace for our turmoil. Open unto us joy for our sorrow. Open unto us strength for our weakness. Open unto us wisdom for our confusion. Open unto us forgiveness for our sins. Open unto us tenderness for our toughness open unto us love for our hates and open unto us thyself for ourselves amen
2: In the third week of Lent already. And at home, you have hopefully been doing a little bit of um, our box. If you get the box at home, you've done the first card, which is weeks one and two. And you maybe talked about Jesus in the wilderness and what Lent is. And also you heard from Mr. Art last week at Live Church. And I just hope that you are enjoying your time of learning about Lent and journeying through all the different ways that we can be spending with God. Um, This week, we are going to start the next card, which is Lent Week 3 and 4. And this one focuses on reading about the Lord's Prayer. So we are also memorizing the Lord's Prayer. If you got the box, there are instructions about that. And you have this right up in there. If you have this box at home, And you have this, I want you to go and get it right now while I keep talking. Also on your card is all about the kingdom of God. So the verses that go along with the Lord's Prayer are also talking about the kingdom of God, which is actually the verse that is the focus of these next two weeks, memorizing that second verse, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And I want you to be thinking about with your family as you read through these scriptures and talk about this, maybe after the teaching today or maybe sometime this week, I want you to think about who the kingdom of God is. I want you to think about what the kingdom of God is. And I want you to wonder where the kingdom of God is. So if you have your box and you have pulled this out, we're actually going to read it together, okay? So read with me while we say the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For this is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. As you read that this week and the rest of your time in Lent, I want you to be thinking about each of those verses. Now, some of you might remember a couple summers ago, we spent time each week taking apart each verse and each word and wondering, what does this really mean? So take time to do that. But I found it really interesting. This week, I read something in one of my devotional books that talked about viewing it as someone else would view it. For example, it asked, how would Martin Luther King Jr. read this prayer? What do you think his thoughts were as he read this prayer or as he said this prayer, as he prayed to God these words? What did he think? Think of other people in your life and what they might be going through. How do they pray these words to God? How do people across the world pray these words to God? Think about that this week. And as we talk about that, I want you to know our challenge this week. Now remember, we have been writing letters. Each week of Lent, we are challenged to write a different letter. So, so far, you've probably written a letter to someone who's taught you about Jesus or has written Jesus on your heart. You've written a letter to someone far away. And now, this week, we're gonna be writing a letter of advocacy. Now, some of you might be scratching your head. What does that mean? What is advocacy? Well, let's start with the word advocate. I want you to take time with your family right now and wonder, what do you think that means? What does it mean to advocate? You may say to bring change or to stand up for people whose voices aren't heard. To advocate could, could be to use your voice to make something better or to be more like Jesus. In our book this month, Rise Up and Write It, Farah is on a journey to advocate. Now, some of you have probably already read this. She's advocating, and we talked about the first week, for a community garden. I wanna read this first page to you in case you don't have the book. Farah Patel was the most inquisitive person in her class. Mom told Farah that when she was a baby, her first word was, why? So naturally, when looking out the window one morning, Farah becomes curious. She'd seen hundreds of cars that day, but not one single butterfly and she couldn't imagine where all the butterflies had gone. What did Farah do in just that first page? What was the question she always asks? Why? What are some of your why questions? Did you know that why is the first step to bring change, to wonder why something is the way it is? You start with why, and then you can wonder how it can be different. Farah wondered why there were no butterflies. And after talking it over later in the book with her mom, she realizes that butterflies need nectar from plants. So the next thing is how? How can she change that? How can she make it so that butterflies, so she can see butterflies in her community? And like we talked about, that is just the first step of her advocating for a community garden. And you can even keep going and see the letter that she wrote. So your challenge is to write a letter of advocacy. Think of your why and then decide how you can make that change. How can you fix that why? Who in your community has control over that change? Is it something at school you want to change? If so, you might want to write your superintendent or the principal or your teacher. Is it something in your community that needs change? Then you would write your mayor or or a city council member. And if it's a statewide change, maybe you even wanna write the governor. And maybe it's something here at church, you can write us, write the staff. What you see around you really matters. And remember, we talked about how your words matter and other people want to hear your words. I want you to take time with your family right now to think about what are some ways that you are thinking that you could bring change? What are some whys? I can give you so many ideas, but I want you to think about those. Maybe it's something about endangered animals, or maybe it's like we talked about something at school, or maybe it's something about the books in your library at school and how they don't represent all people. Who could benefit from you joining with them and using your voice. Once you figure that out, I want you to start by writing a simple letter, just like Farah did, a very simple letter. Figure out who you're gonna write it to, how you wanna bring change, and sign your name. And who knows what could be next? And you know what? If you can't think of anything you wanna advocate for, or maybe you just don't feel comfortable doing that quite yet, it is, just fine to even write a thank you letter. Write to someone in the local state or even in the nation that it works for the government and say thank you. Notice something that they did good, a decision that they helped make that was really good. We all need to hear the ways that we do things well, right? We like to hear when we've done something right. And for those of you who can't write quite yet, you can either join your family or go ahead and draw a picture. I can't think of anyone in this world who wouldn't love a piece of art from any of you. And it doesn't even matter if they don't know you. What a beautiful gift you could give to encourage our leaders and our, uh, whoever might be laid on your heart this week. So spend some time with God and talking with your family and decide who those letters are gonna go to. And then share your ideas with your neighbors, your friends, Share it with us. Our community would love to hear how you want to advocate, and we would love to support you and encourage you and maybe even join you in what you're doing. So be thinking about that this week, and I really look forward to hearing about your letters. And then also a reminder to get those plants in their pots if you haven't yet, because I want you to be taking time this Lent to be watching them grow. So if you haven't done it yet, it's not too late. Get your plants, get your seeds in, and then I want you to nurture those plants. Have fun watering, not too much water, keeping them in the right sun, and watching them sprout and grow. And remember, they're going to be right outside in our Awaken community garden. So keep taking good care of those plants.
0: All right, Awaken Let's bless the kids in our community. Please sing with us. May God give you eyes to see all that.
3: If we've not met, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. So glad that you're with us this morning. March the 7th. The weather is turning. It's getting warmer. I've heard birds chirping outside my window. I've heard gutters melting. Isn't that a great sound? The sound of dripping water in gutters. Man, just makes you want to just makes you come alive, truth be told. Um, but welcome back to, uh, uh, to Awaken. This is week three of Lent, as Mandy said, and I hope and trust that um, this journey towards the cross and uh, ultimately resurrection um, is what you need it to be and um, is doing what you need it to do. I trust that the Spirit is at work um, in each of our lives, and so as we make this way from Ash Wednesday to Good Friday and ultimately to Resurrection Sunday, um, that things are happening in us. Um, today we can we continue our series, The Power of a Letter. We've been exploring a number of letters that have been written by a person who was separated from a group of people or some, uh, uh, yeah, groups of people that they loved and cared about. Uh, week one, we looked at Paul and his letter to Corinth, the church that he planted in Corinth, uh, where he writes, you yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, this idea that uh, the people had written something on Paul's heart, but also Paul had written something on their heart that lasted and that was, uh, that was fruitful and, and doing things in the world. Last week in our live gathering, Art Morrow and Elijah Zupfer and Chris Kester wrote letters to Awaken, which was really fun to hear. I'm grateful for those folks. And this week, as Black History Month just wraps up, we are actually turning our attention to Dr. Martin Luther King who wrote a letter from a jail cell in Birmingham, Alabama in the spring of 1963. Uh, In this letter there are some real famous lines, some that you might recognize. He says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Um, He's concerned not about the KKK or the radicals, but actually the white moderate who's devoted more to order than to justice. This idea of preferring a negative peace or the absence of tension instead of a positive peace in the presence of justice. And then he says this one I love. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? So in this letter, um, Dr. King is actually responding to eight fellow pastors, eight white clergymen who have um, let's just say uh, they've, got some, they've got a beef with Dr. King because of his presence in Birmingham, Alabama, and the protest that his organization was up to and leading. And so they, uh, they, they, they wrote a statement, and Dr. King is responding to this statement from his jail cell in Birmingham. So um, that's a little bit of context, the spring of 1963. And here is the section that I would like to focus on this morning, an excerpt from a letter from the Birmingham Jail. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern serve as the channel through which our just grievances could get to the power structure. I had hoped that each of you would understand, but again, I have been disappointed. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with a desegregation decision because it is the law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is our brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. That is a great sentence, by the way. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues and the gospel has nothing to do with. I've watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, sacred and secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during the period that the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators, but they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had obeyed God rather than man. They were small in number but big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. But things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people everywhere whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. Pray with me. God, this morning as we gather and we consider these words of Dr. King written so long ago, uh, it's my hope and prayer and my belief that um, they carry a prophetic edge, a prophetic word and tone that not only spoke to the church of 1963, but to the church of 2021. And so, God, I pray that you would give us the wisdom, the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the courage to see things for what they are and name things for what they are, and to step out in faith and courage towards the things that are dear to your heart. I pray in the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So, um, that is a real zinger of a letter, is it not? Um, and today, I want to draw attention to three parts of this letter uh It was written fifty eight years ago, but there is there is a like a power in the words that Dr. King wrote so long ago, and I think uh worthy of listening to and hearing again and maybe considering this morning. So three things, the social gospel, thermostats and thermometers, and then finally, ineffective voices with uncertain sounds. So let's tackle the first one, social gospel. King writes, In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic justice, I have heard so many ministers say those are social issues and the gospel or which the gospel has nothing to do with. Um, there is, especially within evangelical Christianity, this trope that has continued to come up over and over again. And that is that there is the gospel, and then there are social issues, that uh, this desire to divide up the world between that which is sacred and that which is secular. Souls and bodies, eternal and temporal. Um, and in order to really understand like why he's having to even refute this idea, a little history, so bear with me if you will. Um, Prior to, like, what we experience right now, which is the even, like, the modern evangelical movement, uh, the dominant belief, I'm talking like late 1800s, right, the dominant belief or understanding about the afterlife and the eschaton or what happens when the world ends was that there would be a 1,000-year reign of peace called the millennium before Jesus would come back. So this idea was that there would be this 1,000-year reign of peace, and then Jesus would come back. This was the primary and dominant understanding of Revelation in the late 1800s, which meant that according to, uh, there was this idea of the social gospel. According to Wikipedia, and you could look it up on, on the Internet, it was essentially this movement within Protestantism that applied Christian ethics to social problems like... Um, social justice, economic inequality, poverty, alcoholism, crime, racial tensions, child labor, lack of uh, unionization, poor schools, a whole bunch of things, right? There was this great interest in reforming society because that would lead us to this 1,000-year reign of peace. And the church had an active role in that, so they were, they were, they were the loudest voices in the room in, at times. But then comes what we know as the evangelical movement, in the mid-early uh, 1900s, there's a guy named John Nelson Darby, and I've actually talked about this guy before. If you're interested in this, there's a great podcast on Throughline that talks about like the rise of or the birth of the modern evangelical movement. So this guy, John Nelson Darby, he's born in England, he travels around Ireland for a while preaching this new understanding of Revelation and the Eschaton, or the end times. It's called dispensationalism. And with dispensationalism comes a number of things, but most importantly for our topic today... Is the idea of a pre tribulation rapture? Basically, the world will get so bad that Jesus will come back and take the church or the faithful back to heaven, where there will then be the seven year tribulation period and then a 1000 year reign of peace that Christ will be on the throne for. Now, why am I uh, and, and so evangelicalism and fundamentalism like sweeps across America in the wake of World War One and World War II, which highlighted sort of the failure of modernity or the failure of the Enlightenment, because it was a gigantic failure on a worldwide scale, right? So why does any of this matter? Because in fundamentalism, in evangelical fundamentalism, the only thing that mattered was your soul. Getting your soul to heaven so that when Jesus comes back, he takes you and doesn't leave you. Thank you, Kirk Cameron. And Nicolas Cage. <laughs> so people could be in poverty. They could be unjustly incarcerated. They could be hungry. They could be uh, under the boot of unjust systems. And it didn't matter. Because what mattered most was someone's soul. So as long as you cared for, as long as that person was saved, and they were going to heaven when they died, that's when God would wrong all or right all the wrongs. But right now, what concerns us the most in this movement and understanding of how to read the Bible, is saving people's souls. This is what King is referring to. These pastors were saying that economic, and most, more importantly, racial injustice, was a social issue which the gospel had no concern for. How can they say that? Thank you, history lesson. And if you think about it, this, this, this idea that I've just explained to you was one of the primary logics at play among the earliest Christians who founded America and the justification for the enslavement of black people, the enslavement of Africans, and the mistreatment of indigenous people. Why? Because only their souls mattered. Their bodies didn't matter. Did you know that when, in like the English colonies, when someone was baptized, they were considered a brother or sister in Christ and they could no longer be enslaved? Which is a problem if you're a slave owner. So we just changed the rules. Basically, when America started, there was this big controversy in Virginia. we got to save the souls of Africans, right? But if we save them, if they get saved, and then we baptize them, then they can no longer be slaves because they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. So we change the rules and say that baptism doesn't actually change the enslavement or freedom of a person. So we could get them saved, baptize them, and then still enslave them. Hear me now, friends. This lie... That King is responding to is this is a dragon released from the pit of hell with Satan himself riding its back. The idea that you can separate the world into sacred and secular bodies or souls and bodies, uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and then all of these other social issues is absolutely and ri- utterly ridiculous and it's actually really dangerous because it allows people it, it allows people to for oppression to continue and for, for, for enslavement to continue and for hunger to continue and poverty because all we care about is souls. And I would argue, like, with my, till my dying day and the last breath in my lungs, that that is a completely foreign idea to the story of, we find in the Bible and, and what Jesus talks about and preached and lived his whole life. So King refutes it, and I would say to you this morning, I reject it. It's not a biblical reading. It's not a good understanding of what Jesus is up to. And I would encourage you to reject it. He's in jail writing a letter to white pastors because of that lie and that ideology that persists even today. King goes on and he says, There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was a period in the early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles, but it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. The church is intended to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. Now, this seems very simple, right? Easy, Micah. Thermometer, thermostat. I get it. They sound the same, but they are not. Think about this, right? A thermometer takes the temperature. That's all it can do. It takes the temperature of an already existing situation or or room. Uh, It's it, it, it can only respond and reflect a reality that already exists, and that way it's passive. It can only be employed by an outside agency or force. A thermostat, on the other hand, actually has the capacity to determine the reality in the room. It is a force in and of itself, insofar as it is connected to the source, right? You hear Jesus. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A thermostat is uh, It's worthless on its own if it's not connected to something. It's just a dial. In fact, there's a thermostat right there. It's just a dial hanging on the wall. Oh, it's cute. It's interesting. It's very nice, Mike. It's a fun tool. But when it's connected to a source of heating and cooling, it can actually determine the reality in the room. And this is how Dr. King talks about the church, a community of people that literally has the power to change the reality on the ground. And in the earliest churches in the ancient world, that's what they did, where some particular... um, gender or sexes of babies were determined more valuable than others, and human life was thrown away, quite literally, the church would come in and take in those children because they valued life in a way that other people didn't and culture didn't. And what happened was they actually began to change the culture. They began to change the temperature in the room because they knew themselves to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. We support an organization called Uh, used to be called the Sheridan story, it's now called Every Meal. Every meal is actually changing what's happening on the ground in schools and with education as it relates to hunger and, and, and learning and poverty. This is a group of Christians who understood themselves not just as thermometers to say, yep, lots of kids are hungry, but actually as a group of people who could change the reality on the ground, and that's what they're doing. And we support them, we partner with them, you're a part of that. We support IJM, International Justice Mission, and IAFR, International Association for Refugees, two organizations that understand themselves not as thermometers to say, yep, there's a lot of people who are trying to get into our country who are seeking asylum, but they can't. Sorry. That's what a thermometer does. It just tells the temperature. But IAFR is in there. They're on the ground. They're doing the work. IGM working the most vulnerable people in the most vulnerable places, bringing justice to bear applying rules that are already on the books so criminals can't act with impunity. That's being a thermostat, friends. The question I want to ask you this morning, Dr. King saw the potential power of the church of Jesus when it was released into the world and it transformed places. Do you see the church that way? Do you see awakened that way? As a thermostat that has the capacity to transform the environments in which it exists because of the the work of Christ and the Spirit in us. Friends, we've been here for 10 years. We're going to be 11 this summer. And God has done some amazing things over the last 10 years. And I look back and I celebrate those things and I, I, I marvel. But I wonder, what's the next 10 years going to look like? What's the next hill? What's the next grand adventure in caper? I feel like COVID has kind of like stunted a little, a few things, not to mention our sort of forward movement in the world. We've kind of just, you know, like steadied the ship as it were for the last year but you know lord willing this is uh, there is a there is a dawn on the horizon there is a new day coming down the road yes but when it does do you imagine us as a thermostat or a thermometer because i for one imagine us as thermostats out there in the world transforming the very places that we find ourselves and that we exist in as the people of god in the world so what is the next dream? What is the thing on the horizon? The thing that we get to be involved in, some grand caper with uh, intrigue and mystery. I'll close with this. Weak, ineffective voices with an uncertain sound. This is what King says of the church. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. And then he goes on to say that essentially if we don't regain our chutzpah and our voice that we will become an irrelevant social club for the 20th century. And he talks to young people all over whose disappointment and disgust for the church has risen to levels that he, it's hard to fathom. That was 58 years ago. And I don't know if King was right in 1963, but I wonder if he's right in 2021. So let me turn your attention to a couple of graphs. This is from the Pew Research Center. Um, And they did some uh, studies in 19... um 2009, and then again in 2019, so over a 10-year period of time. This basically shows uh, the number of religious nuns, which are people who are uh, not religiously affiliated with anything. And then you can look at the top on the right-hand side there. The number of Christians declined from 77%, those who identified as Christians, to 65%. And then on the bottom right, you see that the number of people who identified as with no religious affiliation went from 17% to 26%. So people who are not identifying as Christian is rising, and people who are identifying as Christian is going down. Here's another one. This shows the uh, percentage points in 2009 to 2019 of people who identified as Christian and then identified as non-Christian or none. So if you look at the oldest generation, right, oh, I'll just go over here, right here, there's a three percentage point three percentage point difference between the oldest generations people who said I'm a Christian in 2009 and then said I'm not in 2019. If you look down on the bottom of that those are Millennials there's a 29 percent difference from those who identified as Christian in 2009 and who do not identify as Christian in 2019. Ten years 29 percent of the people walked away. Same thing top graph says uh, the oldest generation 84 percent identify as Christian Bottom graph of red, 49% of millennials identify as Christian. Why is this important? King is arguing in this letter that the church has lost its voice, that its voice has become ineffectual and uncertain. And I wonder if that's true in 2021. And if you look at the data and numbers don't lie, the answer is yes. Yes. It would appear that among young people in America, it, they believe that the church's voice is ineffectual and uncertain. Why? Let me, let me close with a few questions. How does the church get to a place where its voice is ineffectual and uncertain? And how does it become this, the defender of the status quo? Furthermore, what is the status quo that the American church is defending? Or at the very least, not speaking out against? And if you want to know anything about the status quo, you can always look to power. Where is power and who possesses it? Because that will, the status quo will always be connected to that section of people in society, rather than those who are on the margins. Is the church an irrelevant social club? And are, why are young people leaving the, churches, the church in droves? What does it look like for a community of people called the church to know its own voice and understand the power therein to know ourselves as thermostats and not thermometers? How did we get here? I think we get here when we forget. And if you look at the Bible and the story in the scriptures, all throughout it, the people of God get to places where they never thought they would be when they forget. They forget who they are. They forget where they've come from. They forget who it was that was faithful and redeemed them and restored them. They forget what all the symbols and all the stories and all the s- services are actually about. I would argue when the church loses its way when it be- is when it begins to care more about the pageantry and the pomp and circumstance than it does about what those things represent. When the means become the end in and of themselves... The prophet Micah in chapter 6, which has this famous verse that everybody likes to quote and put on Pinterest. The prophet sets up a court scene in chapter 6 where all of creation is standing as the witness, the witnesses. And God brings their case against Israel and says essentially that they've forgotten who they are and they've forgotten what God has done and how God has been faithful. And the response of Israel sounds like it was baked up in Egypt. Oh, what, 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 with what shall we approach you, God? With burnt offerings and calves of a year old, uh, with rams, a thousand rams and streams of oil, shall we offer our firstborn sons? That's what was required in Egypt. And God's response is simple. How does the church become ineffective and weak? When does it forfeit its voice in the world? How does it become a social club that can only report the temperature when it forgets to do the things God wants? Desires to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. When the means become the end in and of themselves, when the worship service is the most important thing, and how we serve communion—whether it's intention or passing, buck, you know, little things in the row—whether we baptize or don't baptize, when Jesus is coming back, how we you know interpret Romans chapter one. When these things become the most important thing, we forget the most important things: to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Jesus himself tells the teachers of the law, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You tie the 10th of your mint and your dill and your cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters. What are the weightier matters, Jesus? Thank you, you actually gave us them. Justice, mercy, and faith. 58 years ago, Dr. King writes a letter from a jail in Birmingham, in which he points out the fact that there is no social matter that the gospel doesn't touch. The gospel impacts all of it and speaks to it, that there is no sacred and secular, no way to divide up the world between souls and bodies. He points out the power of the church and its ability to transform the very places that it exists, not just report the temperature, not just report the news, but to actually change the news. And he warns us as the church that if we lose sight of the end, if we allow the means to become the end, the pageant, the ritual, the worship, the gatherings, the communion, the baptisms, that our voices will become ineffectual and uncertain. So, my friends, let us be extremists. Let us be extremists for love. Who prefer and seek justice over the absence of tension and comfort. Let us become thermostats who transform the very rooms that we're in with the love and the power of Christ, which lives in each of us. I'm going to offer a word of prayer and a time of silence. Today is March 7th, and tomorrow our city begins a journey, an uncertain one, with the trial of someone who uh, is charged with the death of George Floyd. And so I want to give us some time to sit in silence and ask, Holy Spirit, come. So pray with me, if you would. God, as we worship together, sing together and bind our hearts together, um, as we study your scriptures and the prophets among us, in this letter, I pray and I trust that your spirit is at work, that the words in this letter were prophetic and um, reflected your heart in so many ways and still do. And so in the next few moments of silence, would you be with my brothers and sisters as we consider what it means to be the church who has a voice and can actually change the reality in a room by the way we love and sacrifice ourselves. Lead with humility and kindness and gentleness as we pursue justice and righteousness. So Holy Spirit, we, uh, we just throw ourselves at your feet in this moment and ask that you would speak, that you would bring comfort, that you would bring healing, that you would bring justice. as we close this morning um, I want to make our way to the table this place that we find ourselves every week Um, a place where we bring all of who we are we leave nothing out nothing behind we don't check anything at the door and with honesty and authenticity and vulnerability we approach this table where Jesus says on the night that I was betrayed took bread and broke it Said, this is my body, which will be broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, Jesus took a cup and he blessed it and said, this is a new covenant which will be written with my blood and whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So as we come to the table, we're reminded that this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have much faith, you who have a little bit of faith, you who have been here often or maybe not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you but because the Christ, the resurrected one, invites you to come and be fed and known and put back together and healed here. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words body of Christ broken for you take and eat and as you take the cup I invite you to hear these words the blood of Christ shed for you take and drink friends it's always good to be together I hope and trust that uh, our time is what you need it to be and that the spirit is at work doing and saying the things that it wants to say uh, a couple things you should know just by way of community life things happening around here um, I'll, I'll note two um, one there's a contemplation gathering this Thursday night uh, March 11th 5 to 8 p.m. the sanctuary will be open um, based on what might happen this week um, you may need that space and um, I want to invite you, I want to encourage you to, to take it Number two, there's a trivia night coming, uh, March the 20th. We did this a while back, uh, kind of an all awaken game night, and so uh, that's March 20th, 8 p.m. Uh, there's a link. There will be a link in the awaken weekly for our Zoom trivia night. So I want to invite you to join us for that, get to know some people, and have some fun together. Um, and if you have questions uh, about other things, please let us know. All our staff emails are on the website. Um, we'd love to love to hear from you. So. Um, as you go, uh, I want to invite you this week to write a letter to someone who is in public service, whether it's your local school board or your park commission, your rec, parks and rec people, uh, your senator, your representative, your state representative, president of the United States himself, anybody, somebody, anybody who's in public service, um, advocating for change, advocating for something that you believe is close to the heart of God. Um, that isn't happening in our society, our culture, in our world, Um, or to thank them for their service. So um, should you choose um, to write a letter this week, that's maybe one idea of who you could address it to. So um, receive this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The church said together... Amen and amen. Grace and peace, friends. See you next week.
0: Find
2: us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at wwwfacebookcom community.